This is episode 162 of the Stem Cell Podcast, The Human Fetal Retina with Dr. Thomas Ray. Hey everybody, this is Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Before we get to all that, are you interested in finding out which of your favorite researchers are being featured in upcoming episodes of the podcast? Check out our calendar at stemcellpodcast.com slash calendar to find out detailed information about upcoming guests. Stay tuned for future episodes featuring Deepak Srivastava, Joy Wu, and more. That's stemcellpodcast.com slash calendar. Today, we have Dr. Thomas Ray from the University of Washington. He's on the podcast to talk about his research on retinal development and regeneration using stem cells and organoids. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights coming right up. But first, where is pluripotent stem cell research right now? Let us know in Stem Cell Technologies' 15-minute survey for a chance to win one of three $500 travel awards to a conference of your choice. Your feedback will be shared with the greater scientific community to help highlight and tackle the needs and challenges in the field. So to participate, visit stemcellpodcast.com and click on the where is pluripotent research now link in the sidebar all right you guys i'm kicking off the roundup today with a story out of our boy hans clevers he also did this work with jeffrey beekman there at the hubrecht institute this is a story it's a bit of a callback arun to uh the cystic fibrosis stories we've been talking about mm -hmm. in the past few weeks although this is not really specifically about cystic fibrosis in the lung it's about cystic fibrosis in intestinal organoids. Bottom line here, you know, we're talking about a disease that's caused by a wide variety of mutations in this cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator called CFTR gene. Um, and, you know, recently there have been a lot of pharmacotherapies they called these CFTR modulators that can restore CFTR function, the protein function, and they're pretty impressive. You know, they're extending lifespan in these patients. Um, but they act on this most common mutant of the CFTR protein, the CFTR slash F508 deletion. Um, also, potentially on some other mutant CFTR forms that share the same kind of conformational defect. But the bottom line is it's not effective in treating most of people with the rare CFTR mutations. And regardless, even if it's effective, you got to take this thing your whole life, right? It's a lifelong administration with some relevant side effects. It's not the best option, right? So uh, one really, you know, when you talk about cystic fibrosis, this was one of the first things that people thought about correcting using gene therapy. And gene editing technology, it's a really favorable option in this case for obvious reasons, right? But, you know, there's been a lot of obstacles. Classic gene therapy is a matter of delivery, um, you know, and we're addressing a lot of those things. It's still some obstacles standing in the way. But even if you could get delivery and everything right, the classic CRISPR-Cas9 or other, but Cas9 being the most effective, homologous uh, recombination-dependent repair, this homology-dependent repair, HDR, you can use it to restore the, this mutation, but HDR, it's inefficient, right? It... Uh, it introduces a double-strand break. It can introduce off-target, um, deleterious off-target deletions as well, or breaks um, that are repaired by this non-homologous end joining that's destructive. So it can introduce some errors 
that you're trying to repair. Um, but recently, they've developed these new Cas9 variants. They're fusion proteins. They're called base editors, where you can fuse either a cytidine deaminase, which allows uh, efficient uh, uh, change of CG res residues to TA, or CG bases to TA base changes. And there's also this other uh, evolved TAD-A heterodimer that does the, the reverse, um, this a uh, ABEs, they're called, um, for uh, adenine base editors. And they do the reverse. They change AT bases to GC bases, right? So here's where we get to the nitty gritty. Hans Cleavers and Beekman, just because, you know, Hans Cleavers hasn't had a paper in about three weeks. So he said, let's go after something. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they, what they did here is, and this, I mean, it's, it's robust here because what they started with was this intestinal organoid biobank that they have in the Netherlands. Uh, with of cystic fibrosis patients specifically, it has 664 patients, all right? And 20% of these, theoretically, based on the nature of the mutation, can be repaired using these adenine base editors, right? So they got this whole constellation of patients that could potentially benefit using this. And they applied these Cas9 variants, two different Cas9 variants that I'm not going to get into, but look at the paper. They pretty much amped up the efficacy and specificity of these Cas9 and adenine base editors. Um, and then they took four uh, specific or four selected organoid samples from four of these patients, and they used these newfangled fusion proteins to achieve uh, complete functional repair in all four of them. And then they took two of them, went deep with the whole genome sequencing, and showed there, there was no detectable off-target mutations, right? So, I mean, hey, it's a, it's a powerhouse story with a lot of patience, a lot of tools, a lot of effort. Um, and of course, we're not talking about cystic fibrosis in the lung here, but you know, it's relevant. You know, this is a transmembrane protein that has a function in the, in the, in the intestine too. So it expands the scope of this, the, the utility of this CFTR repair approach. And I mean, I think the real subtext here is that combine this with delivery of alveolar epithelial cells and the gene delivery that's specific, and boom, I think we're going to be talking about curing cystic fibrosis in a really effective and, you know, prominent, you know, visible way. Uh, and it's going to be a big deal. I'm, I'm just waiting. I think it's a matter of years. Around. Hans Cleaver's Mr. Organoid with another organoid paper. No so surprise. a lot of really cool technology in this paper for sure. You talked about base editing. It's uh, it's really catching on, you know, a lot of work that's been pioneered by folks like David Liu over at the Broad Institute, whereby you can have these really targeted um, nucleotide-specific mutations as opposed to, like you alluded to, inducing a double-stranded break with, you know, traditional Cas9, which has a bunch of issues. You you know, through traditional Cas9, you're going to basically blow up the genome. The analogy that I like to make is like you're taking a shotgun to the genome and you're just literally blowing it up. And uh, that's kind of the hope with base editing. It's more precise and down the road, maybe even prime editing that we talked about a few weeks ago mm -hmm. might be incorporated into this as well. So on the topic of organoid biobanks, right? This is something that they they alluded to in this particular study. There's like this, and you mentioned there's like 600 plus organoids in this biobank in the Netherlands. I know 
there's like IPS biobanks all over the world now. I think over the last decade, that's really something that's taken off. When I was in grad school, the Stanford Cardiovascular Institute had like over a thousand IPS lines that they were banking, right? Do you think organoid biobanking is the next big thing? And I think with IPS biobanking, the hope is like, oh, maybe down the road, we can pull out a patient-specific sample and then differentiate it into whatever cell type that we want. Do you think it's the same kind of idea for these organoid biobanks too? Oh, yeah. I mean, remember a ways back, uh, we were covering another Cleaver story, no coincidence, about the tubuloids that he was collecting even from urine. So mm -hmm. I think, and who knew that he had this many patients where I presume you're getting from a, a biopsy there, you freeze cells. But yeah, I mean, I can assume that any cell that can be cryopreserved now is, I think, going to be considered as really useful uh, material for you know diagnostics, if not therapeutics. If, if it were me and I had any money to invest, I would invest in whatever company makes liquid nitrogen or distributes liquid <laughs> nitrogen. Good call. They Good call. are going to be, you know, minting it in, the, in this next era of cryopreservation. So from organoids to organoids, we're shifting gears a little bit and talking about a new method that's come out in, uh, in Nature Methods. It's, uh, the title of this paper is Cell Type Specific Signaling Networks in Heterocellular Organoids. First author is Xiao Chen, and last author is Chris Tape. This is coming from uh, the Department of Oncology at UCL, University College London. And this is an application of organoids. So, of course, we know about organoids. We just talked about them. Everybody knows about organoids. Hans Klebers is the king of organoids. You know, you can make organoids from all different types of tissues, right? And we can use them to model cell-cell interactions. And they represent tissues that are more, more accurately than 2D models. That's part of the reason that we're using them, right? Three dimensions is kind of what happens in the real body. So uh, we're going to take everything to a three-dimensional context, right? And it makes them ideal for studying multicellular diseases like cancer that we've talked about here on the podcast. One thing that hasn't really been done until now is the ability to properly interrogate at the single cell level post-translational modifications in individual organoids. PTMs or post-translational modifications are, for example, phosphorylation that, you know, is super important for all sorts of cell signaling and cancer development, all sorts of biological processes, right? And despite the importance of post-translational modifications and the development of organoids, uh, the two technologies, like I said, they haven't really been integrated. And this is really important for cancer in particular, because in cancer, there are a bunch of kinases that, you know, confer phosphorylation uh, groups. They can go awry, right? And you want to be able to better interrogate cancer signaling in this organoid context. So in comes mass cytometry, where metal conjugated antibodies can actually label cellular proteins. And the hope is you can adopt mass cytometry to actually detect post-translational modifications in these heterocellular systems like organoids. So these folks from the UCL actually created a custom barcoded mass cytometry method to analyze single cell post-translational modification signaling in organoids. And they found that cell type specific signaling networks are intimately linked with cell state. So for example, in colorectal cancer organoids, which they used here, uh, the epithelial oncogenic mutations actually kind of mimic the signaling networks that are normally found in stromal cells. 
And to compare PTM networks, these post-translational modification networks between healthy and diseased tissue, they actually did their mass cytometry using thiol reactive probes that can bind to the different organoids in C2. And the data in this particular paper is astounding. So they're able to detect 28 different key signaling networks across six different cell types in over a million cells. And they're also able to track more than 40 different types of post-translational modifications to actually build these circuits that can describe how uh, these cancer organoids and these cancers are actually working. In cancer organoids, you know, the cells kind of rewire themselves. So they have rewired normal signaling, which actually allows the tumors to grow unchecked, whereas in normal tissue organoids, the cells can only regulate acute signaling. And you can kind of detect these differences using this this mass cytometry-based approach. So I think it's actually a really powerful technology because it's integrating mass cytometry, which allows you to interrogate multiple different proteins simultaneously, kind of without disrupting the endogenous structure of the organoid in, in the context of cancer. Um, so we talk about single cell transcriptomics all the time, every single paper, every single interview in this podcast, right? But one thing we haven't talked about is single cell uh, kinomics or single cell uh, signaling analysis, right? And that's kind of what this paper is alluding to. Yeah, we can do transcriptomic analysis, but now we can actually look at phosphorylation too. And if we can get a really fine-tuned look at phosphorylation, that's really important for studying cancer because that's what goes wrong in cancer. So I think it's a really powerful technology, and I'm sure it's going to be used not just in the context of cancer, but development down the road too, because phosphorylation and kinases and signaling in general is important for so many different biological processes. Yeah, this is a, a lot of uh, methods came into this. I mean, you said it with the single cell and the mass cytometry and the organoids. I mean, it's like I'm having an assay-gasm over here. But um, <laughs> the, uh, the, you know, I guess to your point there, this is something that's going to be used for sure uh, down the road. And I wonder, if, is that what distinguishes a Nature Methods paper? It's something, I mean, you said it, they're kinomics. I mean, is that a thing? They got kinomics now. It is now. It is now. <laughs> so they, when, you, when you talk about the methods papers, I guess this is what distinguishes them. Is this like, or maybe it's two types in these Nature Methods paper. It's like this intense, massive effort that's like a one-off or there's a thing that then everyone else is going to take that same approach and then apply it across the board to their own system, their own problem, and then, you know, pull back the veil on that. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like this is more the latter, right? This is a story that someone else is going to pick up the reins here and apply this kinomics approach in their own system. Yeah, I think this is a Nature Methods paper because, like you said, it's broadly applicable. This is something, you know, single-cell kinomics is not only useful for studying cancer like they did in this context with the cancer organoids, but like you talked about, studying developmental processes down the road. So I think, you know, there's a million different things that determine whether something actually goes into nature or not, but I think this is very broadly applicable, and I think that's probably why this is a Nature Methods. All right, well, I got a cell stem cell paper here. Uh, it's an article, and I'll tell you, it's a cell stem cell paper because Hans Klebers is on it. That's how the math <laughs> works there. Um, yeah, so cynical. <laughs> this is another one from, hey, he's very productive. I got nothing again. I want to have him on the show and just, I want him to explain it to me, how he can do this. How does he pull it off? It's not him alone, though. In this case, this is uh, 
along with, he's actually second to last on this, the corresponding lead is Ramesh Shiv Dasani, who also has another paper in cell stem cell on the same issue, also advanced online. So a lot of productivity coming in there. He must have got, gotten near to Hans and suddenly the paper started shooting out of him. Um, anyway, this is a story about the intestine, which is why it started with Hans. The other stories about the intestine, too. I chose this one because uh, I thought it was really nice in terms of unseating the, the dogma. Uh, I love stories that kind of say, that begin with, many people thought, think this, and, you know, in reality, it's that. So let's talk about it. This is intestinal stem cells. This is a story out of uh, the Hubrec. Oh, no, this is actually out of Dana-Farber. Uh, which is where Ramesh Shivdasani is, uh, with a little help uh, from Hans Klevers at the, at the Hubrecht. We're talking about LGR5 positive intestinal stem cells, right? These are the cells that sustain the small intestine, the colonic epithelium. Um, but it's interesting because when you ablate the stem cell, these LGR5 positive cells, it doesn't compromise epithelial integrity because there's these other crypt cells that come in there and replenish the LGR5 positive compartment. So even though they're this intestinal stem cell, there's a cell before them. There's a cell that can become them, an LGR5 negative cell. Um, and so, of course, owing to this kind of unique stem cell compartment, these unique apparatuses, controversy as to whether this reflects activation of a reserve pool of quiescent intestinal stem cells, um, or if it occurs by de-differentiation de of cells that were just LGR5 positive, they just lost LGR5 positive positivity, differentiate a little, and then they de-differentiate. They kind of go back a little bit. Uh, and there's arguments for both these, but a central argument for the kind of reserve uh, hypothesis is that there's rare cells in the crypt that retain S phase tags. So, you know, these label retaining cells uh, that they retain the label for many days, suggesting this kind of putative stem cell hallmark activity of label retention. But when you take those label retaining cells and follow them for an extended period of time, more than three weeks, they end up becoming uh, panis and enteroendocrine cells, okay? Suggesting that they're uh, precursors of secretory, not precursors of everything, but really just precursors of secretory. Okay, so there's still controversy, right? Nobody really knows exactly which of these hypotheses is favored. Um, but on the other side of that, uh, in response to, you know, when you clear the LGR5 positive population, there's both the, the secretory as well as enterocyte progenitors, um, and even some mature panis cells Ultimately, when you do lineage tracing, it shows that they contribute to the replenished pool. So it, that's evidence for like a kind of, uh, there's a lot of cells that can become these LGR5 positive cells, right? And so even though also supporting this idea, even though it's been shown that crypt cells can de-differentiate, it still remains unclear. The controversy remains whether these cells account for the bulk of that intestinal stem cell restoration, you know, or just like a minor minority that's really kind of maybe even an artifact. Um, which of the crypt cells have this potential and whether the homeostasis is, is derived from contribution from both the kind of reserve as well as these de-differentiated derivatives, right? So uh, there's a lot unknown. The idea isn't really clear and also the degree to which these cells contribute isn't known. So what the uh, Shiv Dasani lab here did in order to illuminate this a bit, they timed very carefully the interval between 
the lineage tracing of LGR5 positive cells and the injury. And what they showed effectively is that the intestinal stem cell regeneration is explained almost entirely by dedifferentiation. And this dedifferentiation is mediated in almost, well, in large part by this transcription factor ASCL2, which uh, confers a benefit, an advantage if you overexpress it, is also necessary, essential uh, to mediate this process. Um, and what's interesting is that the regenerating cells, they express that ASCL2 in a pulse, and then they express LGR5. And when you look at single-cell RNA-seq, because you have to, it shows that there's a transcriptional trajectory there underlying that. Um, and that ASCL2, it arises, it starts with ASCL2. And that ASCL2 targets um, multiple genes, but most notably interleukin-11 receptor. Uh, and then if you ectopically add in recombinant interleukin-11, you know, presumably activating the receptor there, you can enhance Crip cell regenerative potential. So it's, it's kind of on all sides here, which is why it's a big story in cell stem cell, is that it kind of resets the dogma. It shows a very definitive result that it's almost entirely explained by this dedifferentiation. And then it goes to the next step by under, you know, defining what the mechanism is here with the ASCL2 and even going to the targets of ASCL2 to find something that's really clinically practical in order to you know, augment the ISC self-renewal or, or, or recovery you know, there's a lot of diseases or a lot of, you know, pathological conditions that begin. I'm thinking one chemo where you could really, um, you know, get a boost from having a, a little help there with uh, your ISC self-renewal. So having this pharmacological approach or recombinant protein approach with the IL-7 or IL-11 um, makes this really clinically relevant. Yeah, the idea of de-differentiation, like as a stem cell biologist, I find this really powerful, right? And it makes sense because you have a terminally differentiated cell, which tends to be a little bit more, like more specified, right? And the example that I can think of is in, in the example of a cardiomyocyte, right? So when you're thinking about heart regeneration, it's tough to explain cardiac regeneration through the proliferation of terminally differentiated cardiomyocytes with our chock full of like contractile machinery, right? But one thought, and this is actually something I think that happens in the zebrafish, is that if you can de-differentiate these cardiomyocytes to more of a primitive state where they're not chock full of like the contractile machinery, then they're more amenable to serving as this you know, reservoir cell source for cardiac regeneration. And I think that's kind of what happens, you know, in, in the zebrafish. I think this idea of de-differentiation is really powerful. And this is sort of what we use for IPS reprogramming too, right? Where de-differentiating a terminally differentiated cell type into a pluripotent state that can once again turn into whatever you want for, you know, downstream regenerative applications. So you alluded to the clinical like applicability of this. Do you think de-differentiation is something that we should be looking into a little bit more when it comes to the clinical side of things? Well, I think that de-differentiation is regeneration. I mean, it's the basis for all these lower organisms. It's how they do it, right? It's how mm -hmm. I think yep. nature has solved it. And it makes sense, right? Why go all the way back to square one when you can get a near neighbor? So I think that, yes, if, if, if I had to choose for myself, I would say we should be looking at de-differentiation because the most robust organ system 
arguably in the body that's under constant assault here the intestine that's what the mm -hmm. intestine goes with right it goes with de differentiation and maybe there's some risk there clearly you know with oncogenesis or whatever you know nature's come up with the balance there but i think you know if we want to kind of tap the regenerative potential of the body we're going to have to look toward a, a, a natural paradigm Stem cell biology is beautiful. De-differentiation is beautiful. And speaking of beautiful papers, the last paper I'm going to talk about is titled Single Cell and Spatial Transcriptomics Reveal Somitogenesis in Gastroloids. This is, a, this is an incredible paper. It's talking about somitogenesis or formation of somites, which are the precursors of the vertebrae and muscles using gastroloids, these like pseudo- developmental organoids that you can mass produce in a dish. So folks from the Hubrecht Institute and the University of Cambridge in the UK have actually managed to generate complex embryo-like structures from mouse embryonic stem cells. These are gastroloids, and for the first time, they can actually grow somites, which I mentioned are the blocks of tissue that actually develop into the vertebrae and the muscles of the embryo. So it's the first time that anybody has managed to generate such advanced embryo-like structures that can represent like uh, an early stage of embryonic development. And it's a cool model system because you can mass produce these gastroloids and perhaps, you know, use them for screening for teratogens or regulator, misregulators of embryonic development. So in back in 2014, these folks actually grew these uh, gastroloids from these mouse embryonic stem cells for the first time. And what they did here is they did some single cell analysis, obviously, to compare gastroloids and real developing mouse embryos. So their single cell analyses actually revealed that these things are pretty similar. You know, transcriptomically, they're pretty well conserved. Um, and then it, it's actually a pretty short paper. It's only three figures. So the first figure was their single cell analysis. Then it was pretty much the formation of their somites in these gastroloids. And the trick I thought was really simple. All they did was manipulate the concentration of matrigel, something that all of us use in stem cell biology, right, for growing iPSCs or whatever. Apparently, to grow your gastroloids, you have to grow them uh, in different concentrations of matrigel. And they basically tweaked it so that once they are able to find that perfect concentration of 10% matrigel, these gastroloids ended up making somites or pseudo-somites, right? You can kind of see in their immunofluorescence actually that they have here in figure three that you have these striped somites that are starting to form, which I think this is this is wild. I mean, you're, you know, you're a basic developmental stem cell biologist at your core as well. I mean, you when I showed this to you, you kind of, you know, you freaked out. My I freaked out pop. too. I would take those somites for myself. I'll be honest. If those are my <laughs> somites good. in fetal stages, I'd be pretty psyched. They look pretty good, man. They look pretty good. So it's a short paper, but it's very powerful. It's establishing the next stage of gastroloids. Uh, these things are pretty advanced. Who knows, maybe down the road, they'll form like, I don't know, rudimentary like vertebrates like structures or <laughs> I don't know. That's the other thing with, you know, studies like these, right? You have to really think of the ethics, right? If these things are almost forming somites, right? Is that something that we have to regulate a little bit better? I don't know. Either way, the fact that you can make somites in a dish and you can mass produce them in these gastroloids, there's a million different downstream applications that you can think of. 
Yeah, the somites is where it's at. I think that's what ethics. Did you ever see the island? Maybe not. It wasn't the best movie. <laughs> but in that, the theory was it was like there's these these clone type things, but it's, there's no neural tissue. It's just like a lump. And that's how mm -hmm. I'm picturing somites. Somites are kind of the the the, the you know prom more prominently, I think the 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 predecessor of a lot of tissues that are just functional and not so ethically. Uh, burdened here. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm all about these somites. Like I said, the, the, I would take them. They look so beautiful. Um, and, you know, my only question about this is where the heck is is Hans Klebers in the author list? This is a paper out of Hubrecht. He must be using a pen name here because I don't see him anywhere. He's got to be pulling the string somewhere. I mean, <laughs> This was the Hans Cleavers episode, obviously. So, yes, organoids, yes. organoids, organoids. I've taken a bit far with the Hans Cleavers references, but I can't help myself. I'm trying to get him on the show. We're plugging you a lot, Dr. Hans. Come on, my man. Anyway, that was a roundup. You know, we're going to go on to a little message from Stem Cell Technologies before we get to the interview with Dr. Ray. If you're visiting the UK and want to learn about organoids, gain the skills to establish and maintain intestinal, hepatic, and pancreatic organoids you should check out Stem Cell's hands-on course from March 31st to April 1st. It's a short window there in Cambridge, UK. Visit www.stemcell.com slash organoiduk.course to learn more. All right, guys, it's my pleasure today to introduce to you Dr. Thomas Ray, Professor of Biological Structure at the University of Washington School of Medicine Dr. Ray's research is aimed at stimulating more effective regeneration in the retina to restore vision in people that have lost their sight. There's two major research projects in his lab involving study of retinal development and disease using organoids, as well as development of methods for transplanting stem cells for retinal repair in non-human primates. Dr. Ray, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. My pleasure. The pleasure is ours. Why don't you start by giving us a little bit more in-depth uh, view of your research focus? So in the lab right now, um, we're exploring a couple different approaches to try and stimulate the regeneration or repair of retina after the diseases that cause the death of uh, retinal cells. Um, I've been interested in this for most of my career and studying both the regeneration of the retina and the stimulation of um, neurogenesis within the retina, as well as trying to understand better the development of the retina and how we can use our understanding of the normal development of the retina to inform our approaches for how to fix it. Um, I really first got interested in this question back when I was, even before I was a grad student, as an undergraduate, when I learned that amphibians, certain amphibians like newts and salamanders, can naturally regenerate this part of their nervous system. And, you know, the nervous system is really not a very, not easily regenerated in mammals. Uh, only a few parts, of, only a limited amount of regeneration really occurs in, in the mammalian brain. And the retina, it, it, the part of the eye that actually senses the light and then transduces those signals to the brain is a part of the central nervous system. It's really kind of an offshoot of the brain. During development, the eyes really emerge from the same neural progenitor tissue that makes the rest of the brain. So it's limited in terms of its regenerative capacity in mammals, just like uh, the cerebral cortex is. 
And we all know that if you have a stroke or a brain injury or a traumatic brain injury, that the death of those neurons is permanent. And the same processes occur in the retina of the eye. And in the case of the retina of the eye, they lead to blindness uh, or can lead to blindness when the degeneration of the cells is severe. So it seemed like a really great challenge back then that one could someday understand how this works in amphibians, how they're able to undergo these regenerative processes, and then maybe try to understand why they can't occur in us. And along the way, we first studied development of the retina, like I said, to really understand better how the normal processes of, of generating cells and neurogenesis, uh, the process of generating neurons, how that occurs during normal development. And then through that understanding, try to take what we learned from there and map that onto how the how the salamander and, and zebrafish or, or teleosts in general um, are able to, to do the same kind of recapitulation of their developmental process and remake their retina after injury. And so we've been studying both of those processes, development and uh, regeneration for many years. Now, around you know, the, the early 2000s, um, it became clear that embryonic stem cells could offer a way to both study development of the human retina in vitro, uh, as well as uh, provide a source for new cells to transplant into damaged retinas. So I would say our research program took a little bit of a, a sideways turn in the early days of embryonic stem cell technology to try and better see what's, what could be done with those cells. Can we model embryonic, can we model embryonic development of the human in a dish by studying the embryonic stem cells? And can we use those cells that we drive from that uh, for repair of the retina? And so, for, for since that time, we've also had an active research program studying embryonic stem cells, uh, retinal organoids derived from embryonic stem cells, and uh, and transplantation of those cells for retinal repair. So now we kind of have these two streams where we're both making cells in a dish, uh, retinal neurons in a dish, and then trying to transplant them for retinal repair, as well as uh, really still uh, stimulating, trying to recapitulate what occurs in species like fish and frogs, amphibians like uridials, trying to recapitulate those processes in mammals to stimulate regeneration from the inside out. So I guess you could say, on the one case, we're taking cells in addition, putting them back in the retina to fix it. In the other case, we're just trying to stimulate the endogenous repair mechanisms. And I'd say we're making progress in both approaches, but you know, we still have a long way to go to really apply these to people. Yeah, well, let's start with the that whole biomedical approach there. I mean, there's two approaches, but I think the endpoint is is medical application, and it's interesting uh, in the eye because of all the things that degenerate with age, vision is is rarely spared. You know, so much so that vision assistance devices like reading glasses, bifocals, whatever, it's like a rite of passage. You know, you get to a certain age, you get your glasses. Uh, everyone is just implicit; everyone takes it for granted. Um, and when we think about stem cells and regenerative medicine, the focus is mostly on, you know, traumatic injury or disease degeneration. But uh, part of the promise maybe is like freedom from minor ailments. Uh, mm. Do you see uh, a path for stem cell based therapies or, you know, tapping the endogenous or delivering either one uh, potential for them to address the kind of soft degeneration? of the eye or even, you know, 
loathe MI to even mention it, but to enhance or augment vision? You know, I think I, I absolutely, I think what we're learning in the retina about what, how normal vision works and, and what the limits are to normal vision. And as you say, as we age, um, these more catastrophic vision losses are only one side of the spectrum, but we're all losing, you know, little bits of our retina all the time. And, and there's clearly ongoing degeneration um, and, and limited, you know, limits to our vision or, or reduction in our visual acuity over time. Some of that's correctable, like you say, with glasses, and it would sure be wonderful not to have to use glasses and not to have reading glasses, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, definitely research is moving in that direction. The only reason why I would I would caution a little bit with some 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 of the approaches that are being taken right now to to deal with more dramatic vision loss, things like gene therapy, CRISPR, and stem cell transplants, and say stimulation of endogenous repair mechanisms, these things are still pretty aggressive in terms of you know, the, um, the amount of changes that they're making in your body uh, with, this, with this approach. So gene therapy you know, may have off-target effects. CRISPR, again, I think we're proving you know, more and more the data are coming out that these things are safe and effective. But I would bet not until they're really proven very safe and, and effective Will they filter into things like enhancement? Mm -hmm. But I suspect people will be, you know, will be using them uh, for that kind of thing to improve visual acuity, potentially to improve the range of color vision. For example, you can think of some things that that down the road might find application if if gene therapy vectors and editing uh, really are, you know, as safe as we hope they are. So, Dr. Ray, on the topic of cell therapy, you know, when it comes to using iPSCs, induced pluripotent stem cells, and their derivatives for cell therapy, it seems like the retinal and the, the ocular field seems to be pretty far ahead, right? So there's clinical trials both in the U.S. and even overseas in Japan that are using iPSC-derived retinal pigment epithelial cells, or RPEs, for treating yeah. macular degeneration, right? And actually, yeah. your lab has been funded by the National Eye Institute to actually help uh, develop methods for transplanting stem cell-derived retinal ganglion cells into non-human primates, so maybe in hopes of developing like a treatment for glaucoma down the road. And certainly, like you talked about, there are concerns about getting these cells to where they're supposed to be in integration and even getting them to GMP grade and making sure there's not the possibility of making like tumors, for example, after transplantation. But the potential is definitely there, right? So I guess you're, you're saying that, you know, we should be a little bit cautious when it comes to actually using these iPSC derivatives for ocular and retinal therapy. So, so do you think that we're still a little, a little ways away before this becomes like a regular treatment? Well, as you pointed out, the pigment epithelium is real. Those trials are, are moving forward and I think show great promise. So um, that's a part of the retina. So the retina, you know, there, well, let me put it this way. There's two basic um, divisions within the retina. One is called the neural sensory retina and the other is the pigmented epithelium. And the pigmented epithelium, those cells are non-neurons. They're not, they don't depend on synaptic connections with one another to actually uh, serve their function. And as well, there aren't very many of them in your eye. And when they're lost in macular degeneration, um, it's a it's a distinct layer of the eye that's really functionally, or not really functionally, but structurally separate from the neurosensory retina. 
The neurosensory retina contains the rods and the cones and the associated neurons that process those rods and cones signals. After the rods and cones, you know, transduce the light into electrical uh, changes in their synaptic activity, then those changes are, are integrated and processed by the other neurons within the retina, and then ultimately is you know, transmitted to the brain through these ganglion cells. That's a complex neural circuit. That complex neural circuit underlies our visual, many of our visual abilities, and, and just relaying that information in a non-organized non way may really not provide much of a benefit. I think we still just don't know that because we haven't done any neurosensory retinal transplants in people yet to evaluate how well they're going to repair the circuitry. So at this point, what I would say is what we know for sure is the pigment epithelial layer, uh, that can be transplanted. Um, those cells can be derived from embryonic stem cells, and those cells can at least potentially function to um, help the rods and the cones survive better and do their job. Uh, the neural cells, like neural cells elsewhere in the brain, uh, often depend critically on their function by making connections with other neural cells, you know, through synapses and action potentials and rel relaying the information and sort of getting it right at a sort of a micro scale. And I'd say we don't really know that much about how well new neurons can be integrated within the circuitry after transplantation. Um, there's evidence that photoreceptors can integrate into the circuitry uh, it, to some extent after transplantation, but many of the early studies that showed that seemed to indicate that photoreceptor transplant was going to be um, was going to be very straightforward have turned out to not uh, be um, well have turned out to be reinterpreted. And some of the early interpretation of photoreceptor transplantation work um, required a bit of backpedaling. And so even though it looked really promising about 10 years ago, now it looks like it's going to be more challenging. Um, and partly that was because the transplanted photoreceptors um, ended up um, transferring some of the markers and, and protein from those cells to the host cells. And I think investigators were fooled by this, thinking that the cells themselves were integrating into the host retina, uh, the transplanted cells themselves were integrating into the host retina, when what they were actually doing was transferring uh, some of their protein to the host cells, so it looked like uh, there were, the transplanted cells were being integrated. So I think the field has had to take a step backwards on that. And so I would say, yeah, it's, we're, we're still now replowing that ground to, uh, to see if we can get better integration of some of the transplanted cells, knowing now that this protein transfer uh, artifact um, in some ways can, can fool us. And so being hyper aware to make sure that that's not an issue for the next round of these studies. So where 10 years ago, I would have said, if you would have interviewed me, we would have said, we got this, no problem. You know, give us a couple of years. Today, I think we're, you know, the field has had a, a bit of a reckoning and a bit of a, you know, a, a step backwards. But many good labs are continuing to push this forward. And like you said, there's NIH funded efforts right now to do some of these transplantations again, to revisit this in, in, in larger eyed animals, um, 
A lot of the early work was done in mice. Now we're really pushing ahead in larger eyed animals to really uh, get a better feel for, you know, a better control for these potential artifacts. Yeah, well, I think it's not just uh, in the eye where you're getting these artifacts. I think the field in general is is having a kind of a reckoning um, with the efficacy. And yeah, we all thought we had it. And uh, I think that it, it's, it's a long road, but um, progress is ongoing. I think a big surprise to the field in general, at least it surprised, it would have surprised me 20 years ago when I got into it. Uh, although perhaps not a surprise to you, Dr. Ray, is that the eye is the point of the spear, so to speak, when it comes to human trials. Unfortunately, there's also been some like horrific stories in the eye with this autologous mesenchymal stem cell spa type places and this horrible stories where it ended up with like these two patients having to enucleate their eyes that were like just diminished and functional, but you know, diminished, but still functional. Um, so yeah, there's some horror stories. I know that's totally unrelated to the kind of thing that we're talking about here with the RPE, but is there a, an adverse outcome even in these well-designed and controlled trials, uh, that could come out potentially that really scares you? Or are they kind of designed so that there's no known scary outcome that's foreseeable? Um, you know, because everybody's got to be so careful because of the, the optics of this early trial. Forgive the pun there with the optics. Yeah, I think you make a really good point that um, obviously the, some of the early trials, people went in, you know, really optimistic, really hopeful. Uh, but it's been pointed out, and I think holds true for um, many therapies, many potential experimental therapies, that the eye is actually probably a, a good place to start um, for many reasons. Um, one of the reasons is that you can measure the function of the eye pretty objectively. So you know, there are lots of good measures for, for uh, outcome measures to say that you've improved this you know, visual uh, response. So there are pretty well-defined endpoints. Um, and that's helped for the gene therapy trials as well, to have really nicely defined endpoints or to make up, to sort of generate new endpoints that we could use, say, for example, to assess uh, low vision in novel ways. And so um, that's been a really great thing about the field is that it, you can have these nice endpoints. The second thing is you can do great imaging studies in the retina. So using, you know, OCT, ocular coherence tomography, you can really visualize with the transplanted uh, cells after transplantation and follow them if they're going to cause any, if they continue to grow or cause a problem. I think, we, you know, you can deal with that. And so, so far the imaging has, has proven to be, you know, really great both for cell-based um, and for gene therapy trials. So again, you can assess pretty objectively, whether you're slowing the degeneration of the outer nuclear layer, for example, uh, using OCT. And I think um, those two things have led to uh, making the eye really a, a good test, test ground for some of these therapies that will ultimately have more general applicability. In addition, the eye is fairly immune privileged. I won't say it's, you know, the retina isn't complete. There are some issues with um, immune rejection that I think people have become aware of. Um, you know, it's not completely, in, you know, invisible to the immune system, but, uh, but mostly um, transplantation doesn't require as aggressive an immunosuppression regime 
as you might have for, say, a cardiac uh, transplantation. So both ES cells and iPS cells have been used as sources for, um, for these transplantations. But with ES cell-derived um, RPE cells, the, um, you know, the, the immunosuppression quite, doesn't have to be quite as aggressive. And I would also, you know, I think, so those are, those are three reasons. And a fourth one that comes to mind really is the fact that if you cause a tumor uh, by transplanting the cells, it's likely to stay localized to the eye. And the same is true for the gene therapy trials and gene therapy vectors. Um, because the eye is pretty self-contained, uh, if you make a subretinal injection of cells, it's very, very unlikely that they would ever grow out into, you know, that they would ever leave that space and circulate around the rest of the body. Do you think that, sorry, do you yeah. think that makes the bar a little bit lower in terms of, I mean, I don't want, of course, the safety is preeminent. You got to set a very, very high threshold that there's cells, a pure population, all that. But is that one of the conditions where everyone feels kind of, uh, uh, they're pleased with the eye as well? Because it's like, well, in case there's this unknown, because you can't foresee everything, right? Is that one of the things that makes the eye the point of the spear? It's like, I mean, I guess that's what you're saying here in your answer is that there's this kind of ripcord where you can pull, you can you can enucleate. But does that make you think the threshold a little bit lower in terms of, of what you're putting in and how pure or how safe that needs to be? Yeah, I think... Um, Early on, in in you know the early days of these transplantations, there was uh, you know there were there were people you know working towards uh, and 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 did do stem cell trans stem cell derived oligo uh, dendroglia into spinal cord, for example. And I remember having a conversation with one of the people in that field at that time, and they said, "Well, you know, worst case scenario, you can remove an eye, but you can't remove the spinal cord." <laughs> and so you know. Point well taken. I mean, that that's exactly right. Wow. <clears throat> so a lot of exciting work, translational work happening in the eye right now, as you've just alluded to. But coming back to the preclinical basic science, you know, your lab is on a bit of a hot streak right now. So you guys have published back-to-back -back cell reports papers, um, one of which just came out a couple days ago. So one of the papers is actually using single-cell RNA-seq, which is a technique that actually gets quite a bit of attention on this podcast, to compare human fetal retina with pluripotent stem cell-derived retinal organoids. And part of what you were able to do is actually generate an atlas of human retinal development. And the, the figures of the paper are really quite beautiful. And I think one was featured on the cover. So congrats on that. So you mind taking us through that paper and trans transcriptomically, how close are these stem cell derived retinal organoids to real human retinal tissue? So um, first, I, I want to preface this by saying that, you know, we, um, we do use fetal human tissue that we get from a birth defects laboratory here at the University of Washington. And their BDRL has been and you know, has been supplying tissue to researchers, not only us, but around the country for you know, decades since I first joined the University of Washington. And it's an excellent group of people, and though this research couldn't have been done without them. So shout out to BDRL, the Birth Effects Research Laboratory here at the University of Washington. Um, what we were able to do was um, actually, you know, by getting fetal tissue and then taking those retinas and, and using those for a single cell RNA-seq, we were essentially able to um, better understand and, like you say, produce an atlas 
of normal human retinal development that I think, you know, will now be as almost like a reference uh, database for the field uh, for all the various cell types within the retina over this period of developmental um, time. Um, that said, then we we decided we would look at at the organoids and, and like you say, see just how similar they were. And what we found actually was sort of surprising to me because one of the things about the organoids, if you look at, if you grow organoids, since the very early days of when Yoshiki Sasai first invented this technology of making stem cells into retinal organoids, first pioneered this approach. Um, there, it's been it's been clear that early on in generating these organoids, like for the first two months, uh, the retinas look really quite good. Um, they have uh, the organoid retina has all the, has the right layers. It has you know the right cell composition. Uh, everything's nicely organized and stays in its layers. But over time, the inner retina, those that circuitry I was talking about, starts to um, not keep up. Uh, it doesn't stay as nicely laminated into its normal pattern of connection of, of of cells. The synaptic connections don't form as robustly between the cells. Um, the organization of of uh, the ganglion cells starts to break down, and the inner limiting membrane that normally would bound the epithelium of the retina starts to break down as well. So the retina just becomes disorganized in the inner retina. Surprisingly, the outer retina, the rods and the cones, look fantastic. They look just like a normal eye would be, but the inner retina does not. So it's there's been this disconnect. And we've been really interested in that because ultimately we'd like to make neural circuits from embryonic stem cells. And right now we're sort of limited because if all you have is an outer nuclear layer, it's great for transplanting rods and cones, but it's not so good for really studying the development of neural circuits within the retina. So we've been working uh, over the last few years to try and figure out why the inner retina gets so disorganized. So one of the things that we did was we actually compared the cell types of inner retina quite carefully in this study. And what we found was interesting, even though it gets really disorganized, the cells actually are pretty much all there. They're just not organized in their normal ways. So these interretinal cells like bipolars and amacrine cells, um, they form in the, and we see their, their gene expression by single cell RNA-seq is actually quite similar. They may not have the diversity of, of gene expression, the diversity of cell types that you would see in a normal retina with respect to amacrine cells. And some genes don't develop as well. We can see that there are differences, but it's surprisingly close in terms of cellular composition. So, you know, we, we feel like for everything but the ganglion cells, which die in all these cases because they lack their central nervous system target in the brain, but um, the rest of the cells look really quite good. So, the third thing we did in this study, though, was because the, the organization of the inner retina just really falls apart in the organoids, we wondered if that was just a function of being in cell culture. Like maybe cell culture alone, since the inner retina is forming in the inside of these spheres, a lot of people think it doesn't get oxygenated as well. A lot of people think, oh, you know, there's not as good a diffusion of gases into the center and so are nutrients. And so that's why the centers of these organoids fail and uh, just, and they become disorganized and break down. And we tested that hypothesis because we developed this way of making the fetal retina. We cultured it just like organoids. So what we do is we take the fetal retina, 
and chop it up into tiny little bits. And these tiny little squares of fetal retina, they form little spheres within a few days. And then they look pretty much identical to organized, except there's one difference. Their inner retina stays nicely organized and laminated. And we can culture them for 200 days. We can culture them, you know, longer than we can culture organoids now. And they continue to develop and mature. And we compare their cells and they're even closer to the fetal retina. So this means that you can you can uh, culture cells from the retina for long periods of time, and they will make connections and get organized and do everything that they would normally do in vivo. Uh, not not everything, but you know, remarkably close to what we see in vivo. But that organized for some reason, then when they're derived from embryonic stem cells, don't do this. Hmm. And so it's got us thinking. What's different about the organoids versus the fetal retina? And some things that come to mind are things like microglia and endothelial cells and all the non-neural elements that are part of the fetal retina and part of our fetal retinal cultures. These things are all never present in stem cell-derived cultures of retinal organoids because we just don't have mesenchymal cells you know, in, our, in our population. We direct the differentiation of the embryonic stem cells just to a neural sensory retina fate. So all these accessory cells may really be critical for the maintenance and further development of some of these inner retinal properties. And that's kind of what we're trying to explore right now. To what extent are microglia needed? To what extent are endothelial cells needed? Things like that. And I think that's gonna be very fruitful going forward and making uh, neural tissues, bringing in non-neural tissues. Yeah, I uh I mean just an aside, I'm working in a in a in a system right now where we look at primary human versus xenografted tissue. And this mm -hmm. is the amazing insight we had similarly using single cell seek is that the cells in xenograft tissue, it's the same tissue, you know, but when you put in a xenograft long term, what happens is that it grows and everything, but what it lacks is the circulating human factors, the blood. Right. And that recruits things into that tissue and typical development. And it's lacking in the mouse xenograft because it doesn't have human blood. Right. Obvious right, right, now. Right. But yeah. we only yeah. know that now when we look at it in these using the high resolution technology like single cell seek. Single cell seek is everywhere. Arun alluded to right. it. And right. I think you used it to great effect there. And, you know, the, it's undeniable how potent it is. But I feel like we're kind of midway through the cycle of innovation with the single cell RNA seq, call it, let's say, peak seq, right? Where, you know, it's not brand new anymore. It's pretty well established, but it's still, you know, it's still becoming uh, more, you know, robust or whatever. It's improving. Um, but the rush of, you know, first in X tissue, first in Y organ papers, they're all piling up, you know? It's, they're, we're kind of running out of yeah. novelty there, yeah. right? right? And soon we'll have a billion cells in a Tisney yeah. plot and that'll be the atlas of humanity, right? <laughs> right it's single right. cell resolution, right? <laughs> but will it? I mean, this is what I want to ask you. Will it? Uh, it seems to me like the more cells, tissues, organs we run, and the more libraries we prep, we prep, the more these cells seem like snowflakes, no two alike. What's your take on that? Yeah, I, I think that I would agree with you 100%. I think there's more diversity in these populations uh, than we really appreciate right now. And, you know, you see this with the Allen Brain Atlas, too. I know I talk to those guys a lot. They're here in Seattle. And, um, 
you know, you really start to see things do fall into categories. And, you know, this was always true back in the day when we were just looking at neurons by their morphology. And there would, you know, there would be the lumpers and the splitters. And the splitters would say there's, you know, 100 cell types or 1,000 cell types or whatever. And the lumpers would say there's, you know, five basic ones that matter. And I think what, what I would say is it, it's, it's not only gene expression by which there are snowflakes, but if you think about neurons, there's the connectivity, the branching patterns, the, you know, there's no two alike there uh, as well. You know, obviously we know, we know that's true. Uh, the spines on a pyramidal cell, one to the next are not going to be the same, but, but at some level, our, our cells work together and, you know, essentially create these stable networks. So basically an aggregate, these cells are working together and in this diversity of cell type is, is obviously critical for that. Um, the properties, these individual snowflakes, you know, together form a, you know, a big field of snow, I guess you could say. So once we understand what that normal variation is from cell to cell, which I think we're beginning to understand, and how state changes versus cell type changes uh, over time, we'll really begin to have great insight into what makes a cell type, what what, why we have so much diversity in these cell types. And when one job is taken over by another and, and where those functional distinctions really lie. Um, one of the things that I like recently about this is, you're right, we're at the stage where we're cataloging everything, but now here's where the fun begins because I, I sort of think of it as like, we've just you know, opened up the back of the little clockwork and now we're looking at the wheels turn. And we don't know yet, like what that means. We don't know how these the changes in gene expression over time in a developing cell or cell population, we don't know what it means yet, but we know what's changing now. And we know through single cell ataxy, what new genes are becoming accessible and what transcription factors are binding to what downstream targets and how those are getting activated. So we're sort of watching the machine in action. And I think now we can test hypotheses in extremely precise ways. That's where single cell is going next. And that, that's what I'm really excited about. So retinal organoids, single cell, ATAC-seq, it's an exciting time to be in the Ray Lab for sure. So shifting gears a little bit, you know, I was browsing through your lab website and I couldn't help but notice how you and your lab love the great outdoors. And it seems like you're a fan of hiking and there's tons of pictures of you and your lab trekking through the snow and the mountains. And to be honest with you, part of the reason I moved back to the West Coast from the East Coast was for the great outdoors. And of course, you're in Washington and the Pacific Northwest is a stunningly beautiful place, right, for exploring nature. So do you find that being outdoors is more of a necessary escape from your lab work? Or on the other hand, do you think it's the crisp mountain air that helps clear your mind and kind of bring inspiration to the work that you do? That's a really great question. I've always loved being outdoors and and being in the mountains, I mean, it's it's one of my favorite places. I also like being on the water, and we have the Pacific here as well. And and so I think we do a lot of um, outdoor activities as a lab. I think it helps the lab, you know, bond and chat in informal ways. I mean, we also, you know, we'll go out to a bar and also have a happy hour or whatever. So yeah, we're we're a friendly place. I like a I like a lab where I feel like I can come in in the morning and enjoy the conversations with all the people in the lab. And so we have, you know, but I think the outdoor stuff, you know, sort of anchors you a bit too in, in, um, 
you know, how I think there's a quote on my website that I that I really like, which is by uh, Feynman, with, where he says, you know, the imagination of nature is far, far greater than ours. And I've always thought that what powers science, in addition to being rigorous and studying something in detail and 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 just looking at the world as it is, but it's it's scientists' imagination. I mean, if you really think about it, our progress as people is limited only by what we can think up. And eventually what we can think up, you know, will be the solutions to what we consider today's problems. And we'll have new problems down the road, but if we can imagine solutions to those, we'll we'll tackle those next. And and human humans, I think that's what we do. We we imagine a future that is better for us or or imagine a future that we prefer to be in, and then we work to get there. So to me, nature just gives us all these examples of, you know, just how wonderful uh, the world really is. And I, I like to always ground myself in that and, and just keep coming back to that and get inspiration for my own uh, studies and imagination through that. So yeah, we're, we're an outdoors lab. Anybody wants to come, <laughs> I can ski and climb with us. Come on down. <laughs> Yeah, but at the at the bottom of it, you're uh, you're solving problems, right? And you're talking about you know that's what, what kind of what humankind is built for innovation. And you've been in it, you've been in this game for most of your life, all of my life. I'm not trying to age you, but uh, I'm not a young man either. You've been in it my whole life, but you're still full of vim and vigor. You're still producing. You're still at the top of your game. And you know now you have the benefit of wisdom, right? You've seen plenty of fads in biomedicine. Uh, what's what's the the best solution you think in the eyes? It sells. Is there something better beyond exogenous or tapping the uh, you know intrinsic potential within the eye, regeneratively speaking? Um, you know, provided we can get it right, that is. You know, I I think that the transplantation work um, that's going on right now and gene therapy work that's going on right now um, is right on target and we'll start to really help people real you know really be delivered to people in in this area you know who have these retinal diseases in the in the near term and so i think we're really starting to see the benefits of all the hard work that so many people have done over so long and i followed the gene therapy field as well since its inception in the eye some of the first people some of the first things that people were developing aav vectors for were in the eye and people like bill's bill houseworth who you know I've sort of paralleled career-wise he, in the gene therapy field. So I've watched that that grow and, and and watched how you know what was initially just a crazy idea has become a therapy and people are seeing better because of it. So where do I think this is going? I'm really I believe that we're in a transitional stage. Um, we're maybe not at we're certainly far from being able to address the problems most people have in vision. Um, but I think having said that, we've got a lot of things in play, both to stop degeneration, uh, gene therapies to correct endogenous, uh, to correct you know inherited disease, and also to maybe slow macular degeneration and things like that by having gene therapy for anti-VEGF, for example. But ultimately, the way that a frog fixes its retina or fixes parts of its nervous system is just so fascinating that if we can do that, if we can get to that stage, it, it just, it, there are many people that will only be helped by that. And so the, the, 
working towards a therapy where we can stimulate endogenous regeneration after retinal injury, I think the same mechanisms will be in play for brain injury and maybe for injuries in other parts of the body. And we're certainly learning more about how to fix retinas by keeping up with people, learning more about how to make limbs grow in salamanders and how, how they do that. So I actually believe that at the core of regeneration and regenerative medicine is control of cell fate, control of cell identity. And that what we're, what we've been working on all these years was understanding how different cells acquire their identity and then learning how to control that. And the better we get at that, now we can do it by somewhat crudely, but beautifully with IPSC reprogramming, we can take four factors and get these cells back to ground zero. But what we don't have control over and what, what the salamander does so beautifully is it goes back one step. It goes from that pigmented epithelial cell or from that glial cell back one step to a retinal progenitor and then remakes all the retinal neurons just as it should. It doesn't have to go all the way back to an IPSC and then remake the whole body of the salamander. It can just go back one step and the zebrafish does the same thing in its glia. So to me, that's, that's the fundamental problem we don't understand. It's maybe tied up in biological time and the nature of how, how, how organisms you know, both traverse their developmental time and how one can you know, move backwards in developmental time. And it's something we, we only can do very crudely right now. So to me, once we gain control of that process, once we understand it and control it, that's where we will fix ourselves. Look to the salamander, he says. Look to the salamander. Look to the zebrafish. Look to the look to the guys that got it right, because you know they're they're quite specialized. They do it well, and we can learn a lot from them. Well, it's clear you've uh, found your inspiration in nature, but I will say that your imagination may give nature's a, a bit of a run for its money. Um, so here's <laughs> to hoping that that imagination comes through, and, and I'm expecting a lot there. So. Um, We'll have you back on the show to tell us how you can, uh, you know, by, you know, with nature as your inspiration, maybe you can find some simulacrum for those processes in human and solve a lot of the world's problems there. Thanks for joining us and sharing your imagination with us. Great to talk to you guys. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interviewing roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com to give us feedback, to suggest guests, to talk about what you thought of this episode. We'd love to hear from you. This was a great one, guys. Thomas Ray talking about his inspiration in nature. Where do you guys find your inspiration? Let us know. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening.